I love that song, and not least of which because it calls us to affirm that Jesus is not just all to me. We sang a song like that this morning, Jesus Loves Me, totally appropriate. My heart was moved, but so much more so when we gather as a church and we affirm as we sing to each other, Jesus is all to us. An amazing, amazing anthem to raise to him, full of scriptural passages. Jesus, our cornerstone, our sure foundation. He is faithful to the end. So I I rejoice to sing with you this morning and I rejoice to continue our worship as we look to God's word. This morning, we will be in Matthew chapter 16. You can see the reference there on the screens and in your your Bible that you might take and borrow from the church. It's found on page 822. Defining moments. It's it's an expression that we sometimes use in our culture today. It really is talking about experiences that happen to us that sum up who we are and make us who we are today. I would ask you, what do you recall as some of your defining moments? Uh, You could think about it. I'll, I'll share a few of mine. I'm pretty sure there was one back when I was around three that where I burned my finger on the stovetop. Certainly a defining moment. It helped me know not to do that again. That was hot. I can remember as a young boy, not even yet a teenager, my brother went off to fight in one of the wars in Iraq and dreaming and wondering what happened to him and having him come back. It's a real defining moment for me to experience that joy. Um, It's another moment where I knew I was in love and then I got turned down for a date. It's a very defining moment. It helped me understand not every pursuit of mine would work out. Seeing orphans in another country, defining moment to help me as I worked with them for one week out of my life, but seeing my selfishness in the midst of what they um, lived in every day. Losing my job, that, that had a definite impact on me at one point in my life. Losing many loved ones, each time that happens, a pain and a defining moment. But ultimately being saved by Jesus, the most defining moment in my life, and I hope in yours this morning. In Matthew chapter 16, in the text we're looking at today, we see one of the defining moments for the apostle Peter, the time Jesus called him Satan. That was a starkly shocking word from Jesus to Peter. And as we look at the text in Matthew 16, I I want us to find out why that happened. And incidentally, you might be asking, why are we studying Matthew 16 this morning? It seems as if I admit, we've been in many places in God's word, hard to keep up with where we're going next. I wanna tell you about where we will go. Um, Starting in the month of June, we will be going throughout the summer through the book of 1 Peter. I'm very excited about that. As I look through that book, and I've read it many times, and I've asked the Lord to continue to to shape in me what I see there, but it's hard. What What he focuses on is the glory of the new birth, but also the suffering that is the birthright of every believer as we journey through this world. And I I had to ask, what was a defining moment for Peter that helped him later on in his life to write the way that he did for the church? And I see it here in Matthew 16, as the Lord Jesus challenges him 
but not only him, but calls his church to a lifestyle of following him. Uh, Look at the text with me as I read it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is God's holy and infallible word. Praise be to his name for giving it to us. May we receive it with humble hearts today. Let me pray. We'll get into this text. Father, thank you for the grace of the Bible, the grace that speaks to us exactly where we are. I come admitting before you, this is a hard text, one with which I have wrestled and is still wrestling with my heart and I know it will challenge everyone here today but it is all in vain if Christ is not proclaimed. May Jesus Christ be preeminent, supreme in every word that you give me but thank you for these authoritative words in the Bible to which we look now so that we will be reproved, rebuked, corrected and trained in righteousness. For Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. So Christ's call to his church. You may have noticed as we read the text, there was no mention of the word church. But there is, in Matthew 16, the first mention of the church. And I don't have time to read through and explain everything in Matthew 16 up to this point, but it's not exactly fair that we're starting in verse 21. So let me give you a brief rundown as a background to what's happening by the time we get to Matthew 16, 21. Here's how it starts. Jesus is right in the midst of the controversy that he often finds himself in with the religious authorities of Israel. Matthew 16, the religious leaders come to him and it says they come to test him and they come asking for a sign for him to finally prove that he is who he said he is if he is really the Messiah who was supposed to come. But their hearts were not set on truly believing and embracing him. Their hearts were set on trapping him. So Jesus, knowing the trap, says to them, an adulterous generation is always seeking a sign and it won't get one. But if you insist on a sign, then go back and read the story of Jonah. And then he leaves mysteriously from that region of the Jews and he and his disciples get in a boat and as they're rowing over to the Gentile region of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turns to his disciples And he's deep in thought and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples are looking at each other and say, whoa, we forgot bread. And 
Jesus, by this point, he knows that his disciples struggle to receive everything that he's saying. But at the same time, he, he reproves them and rebukes them and says, I'm not, I'm not speaking of bread. Please don't be slow to believe. But by the time Jesus is, is done speaking to them on this journey, they will understand a little bit more about who he is and what he will do, not only to address that problem back in Israel, but to use them in the process as his people. And so by the time they land on the shores of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus has a conversation, likely at nighttime, with his disciples. Caesarea Philippi, just so you know, I've mentioned is a Gentile region, but it gets its name from two leaders of the time, Caesar and Philip, who was the son of Herod the Great, reigning as kind of a, a Roman um, vice regent who was ruling in this place that used to be called Panea. And the people of that Gentile region worshiped the Greek god Pan. But now the worship of Pan, as wicked and lascivious and sensual as that was, has been replaced by a worship no less evil, the worship of Caesar, who said that he was the son of the gods. And if you failed to worship him, you were not subservient to the empire in a punishment worthy of death would come upon you. So as Jesus sits there with his disciples that night, he asks them, who, what are people saying about the son of man and who he is? The son of man was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. So they give him several popular misconceptions about who Jesus is. And then Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. First, that ruler who would come and subject everyone under your feet. And what's more, we know from your testimony, your words, everything you've done, that you have a special relationship with the living God, the only living God. You are his son. And Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, and he begins to describe what this blessing is. It's the blessing of having eyes open to behold Jesus in his glory. And as the Messiah, his role is to bring in the kingdom of God and to show what the kingdom is like to a world that desperately needs leadership, that desperately needs to be set right. And so as Peter continues to listen, Jesus says, I'll build my church on you, Peter. It didn't make Peter the first pope. It made Peter the recipient of the promise of Jesus to build his church. And Peter was used greatly of the Lord as he saw people come into the church later on. But he didn't know all about that right then. He just knew that the promise was so great that Jesus said, not even the gates of hell will be able to defeat the church. That would have been so encouraging. The mission that they were on was not fruitless, but they were going into a region where they would be able to claim victory. And then Jesus says, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. And at, at least at that point, the surprise would have come again, as Jesus said that this again. He's known up to this point in the gospel of Matthew to challenge his disciples as they get a sense of who he is to not tell everybody what they think. And we find out why by the time we get to verse 21. 
there were some misconceptions about who the Messiah would be, some half-baked truths that weren't the complete picture that people needed to see in order to truly follow Jesus. But a question that I want to ask for us today as we get up to that point is, how do we know Jesus is speaking to his church by the time we get to verse 21 to verse 27? I mean, it's obvious that when we see him call on people to follow him, he's obviously speaking to unbelieving people, right? No, not, not in this text. The, the disciples have just confirmed their belief in Jesus. And he says their blessing has been to receive that from God and his love for them. But now, as Jesus goes into a new phase of his ministry, he still is addressing the church, these, this group of men who he is making into the church. And by extension, it comes to us here, even in the 21st century, to regard these calls to his disciples as calls to us. For these men who received the charter to begin the church received also even these hard words from Jesus for our good so that we would know what it means to follow Jesus no matter what time or culture or difficulty that we face. So as we examine the question, what does it look like as a church to follow Jesus? We have three main ways. I'll tell you them now and they'll appear on the screens as we go. They are to receive his offensive gospel. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Receive his offensive gospel to align our wills with his will and to look for the glory to come. So as we go into this church, we need to focus on these commands of Jesus. First, if we're to follow him, we must receive his offensive gospel. Verses 21 to 23 lets us into this private scene that is recorded for us and for all the world to read. From that time, verse 21, indicates that Jesus is shifting the focus of his ministry now. Up to this point, it's been all about showing the world who he is and for all to witness the miracles that he's done. Now that the disciples have confirmed that identity, Jesus now begins to tell them what his mission is. And so he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples these things, that he must, important word there, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. One of the things that encourages me is that Jesus in this text began to show his disciples these things. As a church full of people even today, please bear in mind that this message I preach today is not going to fix you. <laughs> Ultimately, our hope is in the words of Jesus as he began, began back then and continues even now his ministry and his authority to speak to your hearts today. And with that authority, Jesus announces what his mission in the world was to do. It was to go back to that religious center, not to overthrow it, but to submit himself to the pain of suffering at the hands of the religious authorities and ultimately be killed. That's shocking to his disciples. They don't have a category to think about this rightly. And 
When Peter hears it, I perceive that he heard Jesus say this and wanted to help his friend from thinking these gloomy thoughts. And the text tells us he, tells us he came alongside Jesus and the image is, puts his hand on, on Jesus' back and leads him by the shoulder over here. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Jesus will not be led anywhere outside of the Father's plan for him. And he turns around and addresses Peter and in the hearing of all the disciples, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter at this point didn't know that this would be a defining moment in his life. But this would usher in the Lord's call to his church to receive what he was saying, to embrace it, to follow him, no matter the cost. As Jesus said this, I have to imagine his mind went back to Matthew chapter four. He didn't think of it as Matthew chapter four. He thought of that as his temptation in the wilderness when Satan came to him and presented to him essentially three traps. And each trap highlighted the flesh in what he saw, the flesh and what he wanted and the pride that he could project outward. And as Jesus hears every temptation that Satan throws at him, his response is consistently, in the power of God's spirit, the Bible says, because God is in control, this is the answer and I will follow my father. This is the, the summation of it. He passed that test, but he's still facing that same trap to choose a different way to accomplish his mission than to submit to the cross. And so Peter, unbeknownst to him, is putting forward a satanic suggestion to Jesus. And it's simply this, find another way. Do it a different way, Jesus. Any other way to make yourself the king that you've come to do, but not the way that you're saying, be killed Never. And Jesus' response to him is, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. By application to us this morning, we have to realize that our tendency is to choose a way of life that does not include suffering for the sake of Jesus. We don't want to follow him into areas where we are called in any sense to deny ourselves, like he says later, or take up our crosses and follow him. Please realize that in yourself, as I realize that in me. One of the things that I would love more than anything else is to just continue to, to live out church life here, to meet and to sing the praises of God and to preach the word and to receive it and never have anybody give us any trouble. I would love that. You would too, I imagine. But Jesus, in his walk to the cross, doesn't even give that as a category for us to embrace or think about. In Peter's time, Peter was reading many texts and he knew from experience what we call the Old Testament pointed towards a glorious Messiah who was coming. And he would rise in power. And they set their hopes on that Messiah. But there was also this other Messiah that seemed to be presented, who would suffer and die. And it was confusing. Even the best of the scribes of the day 
put forward, well, maybe there's just two messiahs that will come in sequential. And we don't understand it, but it's how we're trying to hold it in tension. And what Jesus is revealing, I am one and the same messiah. There is no other. And the plan includes death for me and to be killed at the hands of the religious authorities and then to be raised. Peter hadn't either heard that or understood that at that point. Nevertheless, he's rebuked. And so we too should be rebuked where needed this morning as a church. Our hearts undoubtedly want that environment of safety, of protection, of no trouble, but we don't live in those times. And nor have we been called to pretend that we are. You know, as well as I do, the articles about uh, the bathroom decree you read many articles about it or blog posts, I'm not up here to talk about any political agenda. I'm not up here to pick a side, but I'm here to, to talk to us as a church and how we respond to this has got to include the offensive gospel. How should we respond to any situation that challenges our values? Well, for one, we need to affirm those values and we need to let the people that are closest to us and even those who are in authority, what the word of God says. We have the example of John the Baptist who went in front of Herod and said, you're a sinner. Uh, that's, that's one example. An undergirding quality that we need though is that we as a church need to first receive the offensive gospel. Why is it offensive? Because it highlights our sin. Peter was scandalized that Jesus would have to suffer and die. And rightly so. Jesus had not done anything deserving of suffering and death. And yet Jesus was saying, this is the undeniable path for me. And as Peter wrestled with that and heard Jesus' response, we too need to wrestle with the gospel and to hear Jesus' response and to understand that if we today make our agendas to maintain our comfort or even our preferred way of life first in front of Jesus and his authority to speak into situations with his gospel and calling us to go as his servants into these areas to make bridges with people, not to affirm what the Bible does not affirm, but to take to them the gospel. If we make our comfort first place, then we are standing in the way of Jesus. And he is calling on us to receive his offensive gospel and to go where we may not want to go and to stand where it may be extremely uncomfortable to stand in order to show who he is. Now, great wisdom and more conversation in many, many weeks from now need to keep taking place so that we know more of what that looks like in our time and culture. But I, I pose to you the question, have you received his gospel, do you recognize that it is offensive, but do you know that the offense is our sin? And do you know that the offense is that the righteous one had to suffer? Perfect Jesus had to suffer in the place of sinful people. And so as we begin, even with this rebuke, I see the love of Jesus as he is determined to go on the path that will result in his suffering and death. And Peter is seeing that too. As Jesus continues his charge to the disciples, in the second place, he communicates this. If we're to follow him, we must align with his will. 
align with his will. Look again at verses 24 and following to 26. Jesus says it this way to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, that's a a word that concerns your will. And this is a, a point of decision that you come to and recognize that like you affirmed with your mouth, like Peter did, his divinity and his messiahship, his lordship, so with your life, you affirm it by coming to him and submitting to him and to his rule. So he continues. This is why I say align your will with his will. Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Please note that as he's addressing his disciples, the ministry of Jesus, as it says, he began to teach them, is still continuing. He'll tell them many more times, follow me. And he'll include some of these ways that these synonym expressions for following him and what that means these ways that we can understand it. Well, let's go through them. And I wanna make sure that we have a, at least a, a beginning, if not a good solid grasp of what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and follow him. First with deny yourself, this is not simply self-denial. I think you know the type that I'm talking about. It is choosing not to stop at Brewster's after you've modified your diet, okay? It's foregoing that extra bit of sugar in your coffee since you're cutting out sugar. It is denying yourself something that is pleasurable to you or that is an an extra thing, maybe not a necessity that you have chosen to do without. That's self-denial. Ultimately, that kind of self-denial, I would argue, is fundamentally selfish. While it may seem like you're trying to cut something out that you really hate, even if you cut out ice cream from your diet, what are you, what are you ultimately doing? You wanna look better. You wanna feel better. I know there's, there's health reasons for that too. You actually do wanna be better. So it's not totally selfish. But every self-denial that we have that is not centered on Jesus can easily be warped and turned into a motive that serves us. So Jesus isn't fundamentally talking about avoiding ice cream. What he's talking about is not even about avoiding sin or the outward appearance of it. He's not saying that it is a steely resolve to say no to sins that are otherwise pleasurable to you. Now, do you need to say no to sin? Well, if you don't, your sins will damn you. Sins lead us to hell. Ultimately though, what Jesus is talking about is He's addressing the fundamental nature of who we are as people and challenging us to not find our identity in what we can affirm about ourselves, but in his authority and what he says. Take up your cross. I'm gonna look at that before we get into more application. Take up your cross is an extremely offensive metaphor to anyone, especially to these first disciples. As Jesus addressed them with this metaphor, 
the image in their minds would have been, as many of us know from Bible study, to actually pick up a physical cross and limp down the street under its heavy load on the way to their executions. Jesus is not mincing his words. He's actually telling them that in following him, they will, in a sense, die. Now, is it a a physical death? Uh, the, The Bible tells us exactly what nature Jesus is talking about, about this crucifixion that his followers will have to face. He gives another expression here, follow me. We have it here on our, our screens, follow Jesus. So in a sense, is he saying, follow me by following me? That really doesn't help us too much unless we realize the force of what he's saying. He's saying, the point of all this, the point of anything that I'm talking about up to this point is that you look to me. You set your heart, your hearts on me. Everything that governs you from the inside out needs to be centered on me so that you have no other Lord, no other master, and especially not you governing and ruling your life. It seems that Jesus was speaking in this to 21st century American culture. If you look at verse 25, this is what he says. He has four. And in verse 25, 26, 27, each begin with this preposition for. And Jesus is saying, here here are the things that are really providing you with, with motive and even reasons for doing this act of aligning your will with my will. In the first place, he says, verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. Then he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he says, verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Those words, life, life, soul, soul, are all the same word in Greek. And it does not refer to your physical body. There's a perfectly good Greek word Matthew could have chosen for that, bios. It's not there. The word is psyche or psyche, which we get our word psyche from. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I think you hear the root of our English word psychology. Psychology is a science that is concerning your your inner person. And psychologists or psychiatrists, whatever route they take, are really trying to help you figure out who you are. Jesus is the authoritative son of man who speaks into who you are. And this is what he says. If you would try to find your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And what's he saying here? He's not saying to go out and find a way to die physically or to actually put a cross on your back and walk to some place where they will crucify you. Now, if, if he was talking about that, it would have referred to physical body. What he is talking about is how you regard your inner person, the you that you don't want anybody else to see. And there is a form of you that you present. And perhaps all your life long, you have been trying to figure out exactly who you are. Pastor Tim Keller up in New York City says, it almost seems that Jesus has us in mind 
when he says, you're never going to find out who you really are by trying to find out who you really are. You're going to have to lose yourself in serving me. He goes on to say that some things happen as a byproduct and identity is one of them. I'm very burdened as as I know um, all God's people are just to love well any who are struggling with issues of their own identity. But I say with the compassion of Jesus Christ that our identity and who we are is not up for our determination. We cannot decide who we are. The the authoritative son of man determines who we are. And the only life that any of us can ever find is if we submit to him and we hear from him whose identity is fixed forever, the Messiah, the son of the living God, and whose mission is clear that he came to serve, but ultimately to subject himself to death and be killed and then to rise on the third day. Then our identity becomes clear. We are his disciples, his followers. We go with him wherever we we see him leading. And our mission is like him, to go into areas where we will deny ourselves and we will not pursue our comforts, our desires, but we will yield to him. Those are hundreds of defining moments that each of us face all the time. Will we follow Jesus or will we go back to the way of our own understanding and our own comfort? One illustration I can share, which isn't the best, but it did work for me and it helped me, um, was a time that I suffered, I should say suffered, a lot of it was my own doing, with very deep depression. If any of you have ever been depressed, you might have my experience and you know how easy it is to analyze why you're depressed and then get depressed because you're analyzing why you're depressed. (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about, praise God, it's good. But one of the things that, sustained me, and, I, and I, was a, I was a student in seminary at the time, was a pastor who, who reached out to me, and what he shared with me was not what I was expecting to hear. He said, if you really want some help, and I wanna help you, I wanna invite you up to my church, and you just spend a year with me, and what you really need to be doing is pouring your life into other people. And I thought, eh, that's not gospel-centered. That's, I don't know about that. Um, But you know what? Something in me stirred and as I realized it, it was a defining moment now to die to some certain things that I insisted were necessity for my life and even to give up trying to figure out why I was so depressed all the time. And I moved to the city where that pastor was and I worked in the church with him, worked with a lot of teens who were in need and some of whom I had things in common with just in family background I was able to see what it meant to really love them and to enter into other people's struggles. Did I ever figure out exactly why I was so depressed all the time? I didn't. But to be honest, I began to lose bits of myself the more I poured myself into other people. And I think in part, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Um, My heart goes out recently to um, a dear man who, who is even here today, Bill Mead, who lost his wife. And in the last years, 
of Helen's life. Just seeing him day after day and knowing of his testimony of serving his wife, dedicating himself to do that. And now she is in the presence of Jesus in eternal glory. I rejoiced in that on Friday when I learned of her passing into the arms of Jesus. And my mind went to Bill as I was preparing this text, thinking of him day after day after day, loving his wife well. I want to encourage you, my friends, that we have a world full of people in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we of all people have been freed from the tyranny of trying to determine our own boundaries in life. And we are swept up in his identity, in his mission, and we are called to affirm our identity as his followers and to align with his will. That is a gracious thing from our Lord Jesus Christ. Life-giving thing. As he says, how can we measure what the things in the world hold out to us that we believe are necessary for our completion or finding who we are and our souls. The scale that Jesus sets up is everything in the world that you could possibly have, even the world itself or your soul. All your happiness, all your joy in getting everything you ever wanted to determine who you are or your soul. (laughs) If the whole weight of that scale doesn't tip on the side of your soul. Go home today and meditate on this text and cry out to the Lord Jesus, show me the value of my soul and the ephemeral fleeting nature of this world that's passing away and help me to follow you. You can sing a song that we sing sometimes here at West Park. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. If you know that, the words are so rich. What, what wondrous love is this, oh, my soul? What wondrous love is this, oh, my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Speak to your souls. The soul is who you are. It's the real you, the one that Jesus, my Christian friends, has redeemed and made new. My non-Christian friends who are here today, I, I confess that this text of scripture seems to make no sense. Those of you who would not profess to be Christians, but maybe a friend brought you here today and you're hearing this, you're even hearing me talk about dying and giving up your rights and not determining your identity. And it's the opposite of everything that you will hear anywhere else except in the Bible. The only assurance that I can hold out is not that dying to your sense of control over your life is ever fun. It's not. But the beauty and the glory that you are most hungry for, the belonging that you long for, the acceptance the cleansing that you long for are found in Jesus Christ. And he gives us this word to assure us that that is so. He is good. And I am assured of this above all things as I have studied this text, that he loves me and that he loves you. In the third place, 
What can we think about other than all of this talk of death? I, I confess, even for us, believing friends, family, church members, we, we struggle with this. This text of scripture never becomes easier. My wife and I were sitting down and talking about this this week and fully realizing how hard of a text this is and it would be hard if we didn't know that Jesus' mission was a complete success. And he says with full assurance, even before the cross, this is what's going to happen. Verse 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He's using that phrase, the son of man, again, like he did back in verse 13 to refer to himself. And he will be the glorious conquering king. And so in everywhere we look in the Bible, there is never the call to suffer with our Lord without the associated promise that glory is coming. You and I, perhaps who have been a part of this church for some time would, would look out at our culture and want to give up and say, Ugh, we have no, no hope to have our previous joys or rights restored. Let me remind you, we have no rights. As Americans, yes, we have rights and let us stand up for God's principles. But at the same time, as members and citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which will not fail and will never end, our rights are anchored in a glory that's to come. And so verse 27 reminds us of that third point, that if we're to follow him in closing today, we must live for eternal glory. Someday, even as Psalm 2 promises us, the king who sits in the heavens is even now laughing at all of those on the earth that would exalt themselves to lift up their authority and to overthrow the great God and his son. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs because this has no possibility of ever happening. And for a time, the Lord's people who cry out, come Lord Jesus, we're waiting for you, Jesus, as we sang this morning. We're looking for a kingdom to come that will fill every bit of this nation and the whole world and the entire cosmos with righteousness. Righteousness is good. It's not suppressing or life stealing. It is life giving. For the very nature of God will fill up this whole world and the right rule of who he is will fill up every corner of it so that no evil can be here. And that's why Jesus says what he says. When he comes with his angels in the glory of his father, he will repay everyone according to what he has done. This is not a scale of your good works outweighing your bad. The Bible nowhere presents that. There is one scale, the only good work that counts have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Though offensive his gospel is, you embrace that your sin has caused his death, but he rose again and he is the Lord that you are following. And Jesus will come and sweep you up into his kingdom and we will forever rule with him. The bad work, as it were, is over here on the side where you put all your hopes in the world and everything that it can offer you. And Jesus has told you this morning in this text, what would happen if you gained the whole world 
but lost your soul. Life is coming and can begin even now for you, my non-Christian friend, if you would recognize that the word Jesus is sending out to you is to stop looking into yourself to find meaning and purpose in your life, but to recognize that that is a fruitless search that would only cause you to bend inwardly into yourself forever and ever and ever. Stop what you are doing. Repent, that means turn to Jesus and learn what he has done for you on the cross and come to him, embrace him as your Lord and Savior. He is good. His word goes out to you this morning to come, to yield your life before him, to lose your life so that you could find it in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of Christ. Thank you for the magnificent master that we have that was obedient to your call to the point of his own death, but but rose from the dead victorious over all. And even now, his promise to build his church is still going. I pray today that you would bring people who are without Jesus to a knowledge of who he is, that they would yield to him as Lord. Even in the rush of our transition from one event to the other this Sunday morning, they would not go until they yield to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray these things for your glory and for the good and the great joy of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.